Hey, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is, as you well know, the podcast Walking with Dante, the podcast that has walked all the way to the very gate of purgatory. I keep saying that, and yet here we are at the steps that lead up to the gate. We've seen the angel sitting there, the forbidding angel, sitting there warning Dante off, don't let your coming add up to your grief, and then beckoning them on, all on the way toward this gate. We've had a dream full of wildly violent, uh, difficult classical imagery that Virgil reinterpreted into a Christian context. We'll talk about that again before we get to this gate. We're only going to be at 12 lines of Purgatorio Canto 9 in this podcast, lines 94 through 105. This is my English translation of the medieval Florentine. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. And there you can actually continue the conversation with this podcast. But in the light of all that's going on, we might as well just hit the passage itself. Purgatorio Canto 9, lines 94 through 105. We came on from there. The first step was made out of white marble, so polished and brilliant that I could see myself in it exactly as I appeared. The second was darker than aubergine, made of a rough, dry, crumbly stone, cracked lengthwise and widthwise. The third, which set its massive weight at the top, looked to me like porphyry. It was ignited with color like blood that spills from a vein. Both of the feet of the angel of God were set on this step, although he was seated on the threshold above, which seemed to be made of diamonds. We're here at the gate. Can you believe it? After all that we've been through, go all the way back to Manfred, go all the way back to Balakwa, go all the way back to Cato. Can you believe that we made it here, the threshold of purgatory itself in Canto 9? I want to do a couple things in this podcast. Well, a couple, ha. I want to do many things in this podcast. I want to go back to Dante's dream that led up to this moment because I've been thinking more and more about it. I want to point out some interesting things about this very short passage. I want to talk about the long tradition of its interpretation, and then I want to step away from that tradition and talk about this passage on its own without a million critics at our back. Let's get to it. Out on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com, people often write comments or questions or they continue on the discussion of what's happened in the podcast. In a late episode, a recent episode, Keith wrote an absolutely brilliant comment about Dante's dream that got him here to the gate of purgatory. And Keith claimed that Dante has a dream in some way to separate the pilgrim from Virgil. That is, Virgil doesn't sleep and the pilgrim does. And so their separation is becoming, what I would say, highlighted, foregrounded. Keith didn't say this, I'm adding words here, but highlighted and foregrounded because of the pilgrim's ability to dream. Oh, that's kind of brilliant. 
brilliant in and of itself. And he also said that he could feel Dante's vulnerability in that dream. You remember the Ganymede bits and the eagle and catching on fire in the circle of fire. And he's right. There's a lot of vulnerability in Dante's part of that dream. A lot of possible violence toward the pilgrim. This comment has got me thinking intensely about that dream, and that's why I want to go back to it before we hit these steps. I'm going to draw it like it's a graph, so uh, let me have this for a minute. It's going to be a little complicated, but imagine a graph of two columns and two rows, so essentially a square divided into four quadrants. And let's put Dante and Virgil on one side of this uh, square. So in a column, we'd put Dante at the top and Virgil at the bottom on the left side of our square. Then if we put on the right side of our square on that column, we'd put who they are. Well, Dante is the Christian and Virgil is the classical figure. So we'd have, if we read the square from left to right and top to bottom, we'd have Dante, Christian, Virgil, classical. Except when you think about that dream, it's actually a chiasmus or an X, as the rhetorical strategy would be called, because Dante in the upper left box dreams in classical imagery, the lower right box, and Virgil in the lower left box, interprets the dream in Christian terms, the upper right box. Do you see what I'm doing? I'm making a big X through this. And the more I thought about Keith's comment, the more this kind of bothered me. I've always just accepted that Dante dreamed in classical imagery. And I've always thought, well, okay, you just have to interpret that imagery. But Keith's comment caused me to think more and more about this. Why is Dante given this kind of classical rubric, this kind of classical foment of rhetoric. And when Virgil comes around, Virgil talks in very Christian terms about Lucy carrying Dante up to the gate of purgatory. There's a couple things that I've been thinking about this recently. One is that Dante is still locked in classical imagery and Virgil is the one pulling him to a Christian interpretation of the dream. This allows us to see Virgil as a kind of advance guard of Christian revelation, which is how Dante sees Virgil. Remember that in the Middle Ages, the Aeneid was not only read as the great battle poem and founding of Rome, it was also read to use the very fancy word, anagogically, as a story of the soul's progress to its perfection. Dante would have had part of this as part of his training. So Virgil is a kind of vanguard, advanced leading guard of Christian thought. We're going to have so much more of that in purgatory ahead of us. And also, Dante is the one doing the dreaming. And this is highlighting Dante's role, not only that he is still locked in the classical world, but also that he's dreaming and that makes him closer to a prophet. You know who dreams? Prophets. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Zephaniah. They dream themselves into the presence of God. Dante's role as a 
prophet is becoming clearer and clearer through the dreams, but the dreams are still in classical imagery, and it is a classical figure who gives the dreams their Christian spin. It's very hard in our age, in this late moment of postmodernism, not to see that as deeply ironic, but maybe it's not ironic. Maybe we should pull back and realize the irony is ours, part of our very being at this point in the 21st century. Instead, maybe there's a way in which the classical world still helps form the thoughts of the increasingly Christian pilgrim while also giving possible interpretations to the Christian's uh, dream sequence, to the Christian's thought process. This all is quite complicated. And if you remove the irony from it, I think you can come back to a rhetorical stance. The classical world is your, uh, what do I say, key to help you understand the Christian reality. The classical world is a way that the Christian world fulfills itself in real time. The classical world aids in, in fact, the Christian vision. That's a quite complicated statement from an incredibly Christian poet, and one we will tease out more and more as we advance through purgatory. All right, let's go back to the gate. Before we get to the complicated questions of the interpretation of the three steps, let's just talk about how beautiful they are. I think sometimes this passage gets really coded up in oh, interpretation. It gets really encoded with all kinds of thought and criticism. But maybe we should just look at this for really what it is, something very beautiful. The three steps up to the gate of purgatory are white, so beautifully polished and brilliant that the pilgrim can see himself exactly as he appears. Now, I have never seen marble polished to that level, but imagine it. You can imagine the absolute shimmering, gorgeous sheen of that marble. And then think of that second step, darker than, as I translated it, aubergine. It's purple in the medieval Florentine, but it indicates that it's a very, very dark purple. And aubergine was the best uh, adjective I could come up for at this moment. And notice that this, this step is this beautiful purple. And imagine the contrast between the white and the purple. And imagine the contrast between polished and brilliant and this cracked, dry, crumbly, rough step. Rough hewn. It's not well cut. And we get the idea from the words in the Florentine that this step is kind of uh, crumbly, that it, it could, uh, a lot of loose stones, it could come apart if you pulled at it very much. It's not very well held together. And that's in contrast to the top step, which is very massive and solid. It's got this idea of huge amounts of weight that are sitting on top of this rather crumbly stone. And it's ignited with color like blood that spills from a vein, like porphyry. It's so red. Now, just step back and think about this. White, deep purple, red. Think about how beautiful this is. And then there's that angel sitting up on diamonds above it. It's really important to just stop and appreciate this passage for its aesthetic brilliance before we step off into its theological matters. Before we do so, <laughs> I want you to notice two small things in this passage. I want you to notice the first words. 
we came on from there. In the medieval Florentine, that's la ne venimo. This phrase, la ne venimo, we came on from there, is, you know, it's a, in writing classes, we would call it a plot cog. In other words, something that happens to make sure the plot is advancing. You've got to add cogs to your plot so that they go forward. And we've kind of stopped in front of this angel. We've listened to the angel. Virgil's explained how they got there. And now we need a cog to kind of push us back into motion again. Most critics blow right past la ne venimo. But I don't want you to because it's the root of comedy. We have found out over and over and over again that fear stops the journey. When the pilgrim is afraid, he quails, he hides, he runs behind Virgil, and the journey has the potential to come to a halt. Here's another place. This angel was rather forbidding. You know, don't make your coming here be your grief. And then Virgil explains it, and then the angel says, oh, come well, come on. But it's still kind of frightening with this angel that you can't really see because he's so bright. I mean, there's a lot of terror built into the sequence, even if it is in purgatory. And then you get this very calm phrase. We came on from there. La nevenimo. And that is the heart of comedy. That is, fear does not ultimately stop the journey. Think about this in terms of us. Whatever it is that you have to face, you know that you're going to have a fear response to it. But you also know the only answer to divorce, to diagnosis, to bad things that happen to you, to financial distress. The only answer is to take another step. If you don't, then you're stuck somewhere with the barriters and the pitch and the demons, maybe. This phrase, la nevenimo, sums up the hope of comedy. There can be a journey even with the fear. And one other thing that's very small in the passage I want to make sure that you see is that there are these three steps, and then the angel is sitting with his, and I take it, it's a he, it's Dante, sorry, but I think it is a he in Dante's rhetoric. The angel is sitting with his feet on the top step, but he's actually sitting up on the threshold of purgatory itself, and the threshold seems to be made of diamonds. It has a very hard quality. Now, it depends on how you translate this. A lot of the early translators went with the concept of diamonds, and you can see that I went with that. More modern translators tend to see that word and translate it as hardness. That is, the top step is really, really hard rock. And they want to do that so that they can link this to Peter when Jesus gets the big confession of faith out of his disciple Peter. And then Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so the entrance to purgatory is a hard rock. That's great. I happen to like the aesthetics of the diamonds, and a lot of early commentators saw them as diamonds. So let's just let it be beautiful for a minute without the theological understanding, because, well, here we go. We're about to turn to the theological understanding. I'd like to take a break to let you know how you can support the podcast Walking with Dante. You can give it a rating or even write a review on most of the podcast platforms. Doing so helps this podcast stay present in the streaming services. If you'd like to do more, please consider donating to this work. I've chosen not to seek sponsors, have in fact 
turn down some sponsors. But paying for a hosting site, securing the streaming feed, buying the rights to the music and the sound effects, keeping the web domains, it all costs. To help, there's a PayPal link. You can find it in the podcast player. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com, and you can find it in the podcast notes for each episode. I'm happy to continue on my own with this passion project. Consider it a tip for your Dante-obsessed street busker. Now back to this episode. Okay, three steps. The first one, white marble, the pilgrim can see himself exactly as he is. The second step, all broken and crumbly, but very dark like aubergine and cracked lengthwise and widthwise. It's cracked in every which way. And then the third step, which is this dark red porphyry, it seems like flaming red, but then it says like blood that spills from a vein. And in a Christian context, this suddenly makes it very allegorical because we think of the blood spilled at the crucifixion. I was just in Madrid for eight glorious days and spent three unbelievable days in the Prado, and I saw so much great it undid me. I've never been to Madrid or the Prado before. I literally broke down crying when I walked into the Prado that I had finally gotten here. Bruce just held me and I cried thinking, oh my gosh, I got to the Prado. Anyway, I was in the Prado and I was looking at the medieval art and there were some great paintings of angels and others collecting the blood from Jesus as it drips down the cross. We remarked on this about how intriguing it was to catch every drop of his blood in these paintings. And here, the blood from a vein surely brings us back to this crucifixion reference. So these are the three steps, and what do they mean? Almost all critics say that this is what they mean. The first step is confession, because the pilgrim can see himself in the step exactly as he is. So this represents the sacrament of confession. The second step, which is broken and dark and crumbly, is contrition, is falling apart. You've made your confession. Now you're falling apart a bit. You don't feel uh, quite as good inside as you did. You've realized the darkness in you. And then the third step would be satisfaction, to use the theological word, or redemption. That is, that you've now been absolved, forgiven. Not completely forgiven. We have to wait for the top of purgatory for that. But at least you are now on your way to forgiveness. You've passed in Christian terms through the blood of Jesus. But if we don't want it in Christian terms, we could say that you've passed through the fire and that you have found yourself actually in a much better, more illuminated spot, a brighter spot, the flame from the color, a brighter spot than the darkness before. So what we have then is confession, contrition, and satisfaction. Here's the problem. (laughs) That's not the right order. In Thomistic theology, confession doesn't come first. It comes second. In Thomistic theology, this is going to get a little complicated, the proper order is contrition, which leads to confession, which leads to satisfaction. That is, you feel bad, you express it, and then you are absolved or you find some kind of absolution. You'll notice that Dante has reversed the order here. So he has made the speech act of confession the first step. 
then you are contrite, and then you find satisfaction. We shouldn't expect any less from a poet. That is, the words themselves help form the experience. Robert Hollander points out the most important thing here, he says, is that there's no priestly function inside of this repentance sequence. Instead, this seems as if you climb the steps yourself. You might think that this is some kind of nascent Protestantism out of Dante. I don't think so. I think you should always keep in your mind that this is being written during the Avignon papacy. The papacy has left Rome. Dante sees the church as inevitably and formally corrupted. There is no hope for the church having decamped for Provence (laughs) and decamped for the palace of Avignon. And so Dante is trying to figure out how salvation can happen with a completely corrupted church. And so he's pushed it into the individual. And it is true. Climbing these steps, you apparently do it on your own. And you get to the top and face the angel on your own without a priestly presence somehow forgiving you. Although the angel, we will see in the next passage, does act a little priestly. So there's the problem. The steps are a bit out of order in Thomistic theology, but they seem to make better sense for a poet. And trust me, there are 700 years of critics worrying about exactly the allegory of these steps. But I want to step away from this in the next part of this episode and talk about this without the allegory. What could we say about this passage? Dante has come to the gate of purgatory itself, and we, following him, have entered an interpretive or allegorical quagmire. I bet you could come up with other explanations for white, aubergine, and red. The ones I gave you are pretty standard, but I bet you could work around with it and come up with others. In fact, this is what is so intriguing. If we just take the allegory out of this for a minute, what we see is that we have come up to a very beautiful spot that clearly has symbolic resonance, and we have to figure it out, which means that Dante has basically brought us to the gate of purgatory and then asked for an act of interpretation out of us. Remember he said this already in the warning to the reader. You know, we just passed through that second warning to the reader, direct address. And it was a warning where he said, you know, hey, I'm going to lay it on really thick in what's ahead. Don't be surprised (laughs) if it gets more difficult in what's ahead. And then we get to the very gate of purgatory itself and we find ourselves in an allegorical and interpretive crux, a quagmire, a place we have to figure it out. It's as if Dante has thrown it into our lap. And we could stand back and say, oh, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, white, purple, dark purple, red, diamonds, oh my gosh, which I think is really an important response to what's happening here. But also, we have to know, once it lands in our lap, we got to do something with it. we got to interpret it. we got to know what the, what does it mean. It just can't mean white, purple, red, diamonds. It has to mean something in terms of the larger river of the poem, which means that we've gotten to this point and the poem has lifted up to a meta level without actually doing it. It's forcing me up onto a meta level, onto an interpretive level. and It's pushing me up there without ever telling me what it all means. That strikes me as incredibly important to why this passage has caused so much trouble. Not what it means, but the fact that It does indeed have to mean something, but what is it? 
Remember the entrance to hell? It was a gate with words over it. And the entrance to hell was a literary act. Remember, you know, the whole abandoned hope bit that's sitting over the gate. It's all those nine lines and before me and all that stuff. And then the pilgrim reads it and doesn't know what it means and turns to Virgil and says, I don't get it. This is really hard for me to understand. And Virgil explains what the literary text is. Okay, just think about this. The entrance to inferno is a literary act the entrance to purgatorio is a speech act it is the angel who says come forward then you know and let's hope it doesn't come to your grief it is a speech act but in fact it's still a literary act because this is a poem and you and i are reading it we have pushed farther into the fiction of the fiction we have pushed <laughs> we have pushed farther into the meta reality because although the entrance to hell was a literary or writerly act and the entrance to purgatory is a speech act that speech act is read by us the readers and so is in fact a literary act behind it but, you know, we're kind of meta-ing here. <laughs> I turned it into a verb. Meta-ing here. And we're having a speech act, which is a literary act, which we are reading and we have to read it. And this is what kills me. The gate of purgatory is a speech act, which leads to further speech acts. In Inferno, they read the inscription over the gate. Dante didn't get it. Virgil explains it. Here... We see the steps of purgatory, and guess what we have to do? We have to reply with the speech act, which is this podcast. We have to reply with interpretation. We have to make something out of it. There's nobody explaining this to us. Nobody is going to step forward and say, okay, well, here's what the steps mean, as Virgil did at the entrance to Inferno. We are being put in the place of the interpreter, which in Dante's day is largely a speech act, and it is here in this podcast, too. We're talking about it, and this speech act allows us to understand what's going on here in the allegory. It's really interesting to think about why Dante would do this. It's really interesting to think about how he set it up, that there's a kind of static quality to the entrance to Inferno with the writerly text. But this has a very active quality because I look at it and I think, well, what does it mean? And then I kind of have to play with it and try to figure out what it means. He's really set it up so that I have to be engaged with the poem. I can't even rely on the poet to step forward and explain it for me. I have to figure this out, which means that I have been put in the place of furthering the poem, I have been forced onto a meta level of interpretation. And of course, there's a further speech act here, and that would be the speech act from the pilgrim confession, right? The pilgrim's first step is to see himself as he really is in the white marble. Confession, especially in a Catholic tradition or in Christian tradition of Dante's day, is a speech act. You have to confess it. It probably is in all Christian contexts, even Protestant contexts. You have to say it even to yourself. So it is a speech act, and yet here we come to a passage that demands more speech acts out of us. It's so interestingly structured, and it seems to me that Dante is working with a 
high level of complexity right here, something that, in fact, at first looks difficult. And then the more you think about it, why? Why does the gate of purgatory look like this? Not what does it mean, but actually why is it set up so that I have to make meaning out of it? It becomes even more complex. Let's look at the passage one more time. Purgatorio, Canto 9, lines 94 through 105. We came on from there. The first step was made out of white marble so polished and brilliant that I could see myself in it exactly as I appeared. The second was darker than aubergine, made of a rough, dry, crumbly stone, cracked lengthwise and widthwise. The third which set its massive weight at the top, looked to me like porphyry. It was ignited with color, like blood that spills from a vein. Both of the feet of the angel of God were set on this step, although he was seated on the threshold above, which seemed to be made of diamonds. We're not done with this gate. We just got to the threshold, and the angels got more to do. To get there, you got to subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, do all those things you do. I really wanted this episode to step away from 700 years of commentary and just think about the passage as it lies on the page. Think about it not in terms of what every other critic thinks about it, although we did that, but think about why Dante has placed such a riddle here right at the threshold of purgatory. I hope I kind of got you on the road to that, but I mean, there's a lot more to say. I wish we could say it together. We can if you check out the comment section on my website or else, well, we can hope for a world someday where indeed we can. We're going to go on and see what the angel does for our pilgrim in the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'll see you then on the journey ahead. I'm Mark Scarborough. Keep those shoes ready for walking.